how signs and wonders function in God's unfolding plan of redemption, right? So that we can understand what ought we to be expecting at this point in redemptive history, um, what are the things we ought to be praying for, um, you know, how you understand signs and wonders really does sort of shape how you live uh, your life and, how you, and what you think to be your primary responsibility b- before God um, and how you can live a faithful Christian life. Right, would you agree with that? So what I want to do first, though, is I want to begin uh, with a true story. All right, there's a husband and wife. This is not long ago in my, my life. Uh, the husband and wife uh, are both members of a large church, and their marriage was in trouble. They were young with two young children. And, and the, the wife had a vision, which she understood to be a vision. And then, on top of that, she had a dream, which she understood to be a confirmation of the vision. And what was the contents of the vision and the dream? It was that God made it absolutely clear to her that she needed to leave her husband. And then the dream confirmed it with certainty for her. So she went uh, naturally. She's a part of a church, and she goes to her leadership, uh, specifically her small group leadership. And she says, this is what I've seen. Uh, This is my vision. This is the dream I've had. This is the issues I'm having in my life. God is clearly speaking to me. What do I need to do? What would you say? <laughs> Russ said, go talk to Randy. Well, maybe wait till this series is over and then you might change your mind. <laughs> um, but what would you say to her? Well, let me tell you what her, her spiritual leadership said to her. They said, it is clear that God is speaking to you. That this vision is clearly from the Lord and that the dream is confirmatory. And it's clear to us that you need to leave your husband. Both husband and wife are in this church. And so there is no infidelity, no abuse in the marriage, no biblical grounds for divorce, just a vision, a dream, um, a woman who wanted to leave her husband, a difficult marriage, and leadership who confirmed um, what they sought to be uh, a miraculous um, word from God. We need to understand the purpose of signs, wonders, and redemption. Um, Signs, wonders, and the miraculous. We need to understand the purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles in order to faithfully navigate this life. We need to know that for our own personal um, faithfulness to God, but also how we can help others uh, like this lady and this man who, who are now divorced um, and all based on what, what she understood to be God's word to her that was more authoritative than God's clear written word um, that says the Lord hates divorce. Right. So what I want to do uh, this morning is to sort of take a, a step back and we often, when we're thinking about signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, charismatic gifts, 
uh, when we're thinking about miracles, all these things, we tend to look at very, uh, to, to use an analogy, we tend to look at the trees, right? We go from one tree to the next of Scripture, um, one verse to the next, and the discussion usually is just on, well, this tree says this, or this verse says this, this verse says this. We, we seldom are able to zoom out and get a picture of the whole forest, right? So what I want to do this morning is I, I don't plan this morning or even in this series to exhaustively cover all the questions that you might have, that I personally have maybe, of, of uh, how do signs and wonders and miracles function today, um, how, do, how ought we to understand tongues. Um, I, I don't plan to exhaustively uh, cover every point. But what I want to do is look at some foundational uh, just understandings of Scripture that ought to, uh, that will help us to understand uh, how signs, wonders, miracles function today, right? I mean, you probably, you probably know someone in your life who thinks um, that if they pray hard enough, God will resurrect someone who's dead. Um, you probably know someone in your life who, like this woman uh, that I know, has visions and dreams, she thinks God speaks to her uh, through these different avenues, rather than mainly through the Word of God and through the Spirit. Um, right? You probably know people like that. Is that is that true? Okay, I'm going to take a drink of coffee. Yeah, and we need to know how to answer answer people like this, and and how to how to not just for the sake of argument, right? We are about glorifying Christ. That's what we're about. And this issue is directly related to Christian obedience, right? And that's why it's so foundational and important, all right? So let's, um, let's work through this morning specifically what I want to do is uh, take a look at the lo- larger storyline of Scripture and show you how signs and wonders operate in God's plan of redemption, all right? That's my goal this morning. And, and what I want to say is that a proper understanding of miracles, wonders, and signs begins by properly understanding three things. And to put it simply, uh, we have to understand God's plan, we have to understand God's ways, and we have to understand our place. That is, our place in God's redemptive plan. All right, you tracking with me? All right, so that's what we're going to follow, and it will develop each one of these points um, as we go, and, and these do sort of build on the next, so if you're thinking, where are we going, um, just hang in and hang in there, and we're, we're going to unpack each thing, and it'll sort of interlock, hopefully. All right, so first, we, we have to understand God's plan. Right, we have to understand God's plan. That is to say, we have to understand God's plan of redemption. Um, and there are two key words that you need to write down, all right? Two key, two key things when we're thinking about God's plan of redemption, all right? The first one is unfolding, and the second word is progressive, unfolding and progressive. And, and let me tell you what I mean by those two terms. God's plan, His redemptive plan, is unfolding in history, right? 
It's, it's a plan that's being unveiled, it's developing, it's progressing, it's unfolding throughout history. So when we look at our Bibles, and we open to Exodus 14, right, we are at a, a key point in God's unfolding plan of history, His unfolding plan of redemption. Who can tell me what's Exodus 14? What, are you, what about you E4M guys? Right? So Exodus 14, Red Sea crossing. Okay? The, the single greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, um, right? A, a second to Christ's redemptive work. Uh, this is the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. Um, that is a, a, a portion of God's unfolding plan, right? So just to sort of put a parenthetical here, we don't expect, if you're out hiking, right? You're, you're out. Benbrook Lake or something, right? You come to a high water spot. You think, man, I didn't bring my, um, my Chacos or whatever to cross this creek. Um, you don't pray, likely. Maybe you do. Um, maybe you'll change your mind after this lesson. <laughs> you don't pray and expect God to part the waters, right? You don't do that. And we'll talk about why we don't do that in a few minutes. But we don't normally do that. Why? Because we understand that when God parted the sea uh, in Exodus 14, this was an epic in history. This was God doing a specific work in a specific time, in a specific place, with a specific people, with a specific purpose, right? This is what God is doing. Um, and so we can parachute into Exodus 14. We could go to um, the book of Numbers. We could go to Joshua, the Canaanite conquests, and Jericho. Right? This is, these are all specific moments in God's unfolding plan of redemption. So when we think about the plan of God, we need to think about it as an unfolding plan. It's an unfolding plan. And really, uh, God's unfolding plan of redemption began in Genesis 3.15. Right? With the uh, promise that from Eve would come a, a seed. A child who would do what? Crush the head of the serpent. That's the first mention of the gospel, the first messianic prophecy that we have. There was a promise that there would be a child that would come from Eve who would defeat the devil and crush the serpent's head. And what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament really is that single promise in Genesis 3.15 sort of develop and progress throughout history. We know that God comes to Abram in Genesis 12, and God calls him out of paganism, um, and he sets him aside, uh, Abram specifically, aside as the one through whom God is going to do three specific things. He's going to give him a land, um, he's going to give him a seed, and he's going to make him a blessing to the nations, right? Land, seed, blessing, Genesis 12. There was, the idea there is that the, the offspring of Abraham is going to be the means by which or through which God blesses the nations. And so what happens is at this point in Genesis 12, there's no Israel, there's no nation, um, there's only uh, two old folks um, who have been given a promise that they will have a baby. It's not looking promising, right? Um, and God cements his, uh, the faith of Abraham and Sarah, 
uh, through this time and answers his promise to bring a child. Um, And then, as we develop throughout history, the history of the Old Testament, um, the promise to Abraham is reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob, uh, to the patriarchs in Genesis. It's continued and renewed uh, with the formation of the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, with the redemption of Israel um, out of Egypt. The same promise that God was going to uh, give a seed uh, and an offspring to the woman uh, continues through Abraham, the patriarchs, and then on to David. You remember David's, uh, God's promise to David that his seed, his offspring, would do what? Would sit on the throne for how long? Well, that's a unique child, isn't it? Right? It's not your average child. There would be a child who would sit on the throne eternally, forever. And when we come to the New Testament, um, well, let me say this. The same promise from David, the same promise is repeated and developed over and over again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the historical books, the Psalms, wisdom literature, and, and definitely we see that in the prophets, right? And so this is a single promise that God is just developing and unfolding in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, we see the exact same thing. Namely, that God is about unfolding His single promise, larger promise of redemption in the New Testament. And we see that um, through the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abram, the offspring of David, God was going to reconcile Israel to Himself. This is why the Gospels are adamant to connect Jesus with David. Why, do, uh, why does the gospel begin with a genealogy? You ever thought about that? Right? Usually when you're going to share the gospel with someone, um, you don't start with a genealogy. Right? You want to try to hook them with something, <laughs> get their attention a little bit. Um, genealogies aren't very attractive. right? But Matthew starts with a genealogy because he's saying this is one promise. Right? This is an unfolding plan, an unfolding promise of God. That God is going to redeem, uh, specifically redeem Israel, right? This is what we see. The Old Testament is about one nation, Israel, um, and Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. And so as history progresses, God's plan unfolds. And this development of God's plan and this progress of history is what we call progressive revelation. So, unfolding in progress. Progressive revelation is the doctrine that later revelation, right, later revelation is built on previous revelation. Namely, the Old Testament, or the New Testament, is built on the Old Testament. This is an important point uh, that seems sort of uh, rudimentary, and it is, but we often uh, miss sight of it. The New Testament is not the reworking, redoing, revising, Um, editing, bettering of the Old Testament, right? The New Testament is the continuation of the Old Testament, right? The the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. What what was the, um, you know, we think about Acts 17 here. When, When Peter, or when Paul preached to the Bereans, you remember that? How did they hold Paul's gospel preaching, um, how did they hold him accountable for what he was saying? What was their standard? The scriptures, 
right? The scriptures, namely the Old Testament, right? That's what they had. The Old Testament was the Bible of the church, right? This is what they had. So we, for the Old Testament, I mean, for the apostles, for the, the early church, the Old Testament was, was, was not to be revised and redone, right? This was God's one promise that was going to be unfolded in the New Testament, all right? So there's this continual storyline. So those two things, progress, uh, progressive revelation, and unfolding plan. Now, an important point to remember at this point, and we're in the New Testament, but we need to remember that as God's, that this, the redemptive plan of God was directed towards the people of Israel, all right? The, the, the uh, New Covenant, even, if you look at Jeremiah 31, um, the New Covenant, those covenants are made with a single people, uh, Israel and Judah. Right? The New Testament, I mean, the, the redemptive plan of God is focused primarily on the people of Israel. Now, don't, I'm, don't hit eject yet. All right? we're, gonna, we're, we're in the progress of redemption, okay? We're at one point in the epic, all right? So don't jump ship on me yet. Um, and I want to show you how that's true. Matthew 10, if you look at Matthew 10, 5 to 6, um, we know, as you're turning, uh, that Jesus was a Jewish man in the line of Abraham and David, and he came specifically as the Messiah of the Jewish people. All right, Matthew 10, 5 to 6, Jesus says this, as he sends out um, his witnesses. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go where? Right. And then in fifteen, chapter 15 and verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What he means there is this is all about the salvation of Israel. I am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, son of David, and I'm here to fulfill all the messianic promises that came through the prophets, right? I am Israel's savior. But something happens, right? So Matthew 10, Jesus says, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, in Matthew 15, he says, I'm, I'm Israel's Savior. But something happens between Matthew 15 and Matthew 28. What happens in Matthew 28? Who, who are God's Who are the disciples to go to? Right. Right. There's some, something happens. There's some development there. And, and what it is, is it's the cross, right? Christ is crucified. Um, this is, I mean, this is the pivot point of history. Um, major, it seems like an understatement to say major point in redemptive history. The climax maybe of redemptive history. Um, this is where God's plan comes to fruition. So God's plan um, was unfolding and it came about that Christ died for sinners. And then God says to his disciples, Jesus says to his disciples, go Make disciples of the nations. No longer just think about Israel, but go to the nations. And, it, and you think about Paul in Romans 1.16. He says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. 
Right? That's what he means there. Right? He's talking about this priority of Israel. But what we see is that while Israel was priority, God's plan was unfolding, and it unfolded to envelop the nations themselves. And we see this very specifically in the book of Acts. Um, and so I want you to turn with me to Acts 2. All right, so we're kind of transitioning to God's ways here. Um, God's plan is unfolding, uh, but as it unfolds, we see that God marks these unfolding points of redemptive history with supernatural signs and wonders. This is God's method. It's God's ways. And in the book of Acts, we see this specific dynamic of God's redemptive plan to envelop the whole world. We see it unfold in four key passages. And and around these four key passages are signs and wonders, tongues, um, and other miraculous things that are happening, right? Um, And so the major points, when when you're in the book of Acts and you, you read about tongues, they happen within these four areas of Acts, Right? So these four areas, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19, are key for us to understand how signs and wonders function in God's redemptive plan. Are right, you with me? Okay. Let's look at them. Acts 2, we see that God is saving the Jews. He's going to, un- un- he's going to pour out the Spirit on the Jewish people. Acts 8, it's the Samaritans. Acts 10, it's the Gentiles. And Acts 19, it's old covenant believers, disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, and we're going to walk through each one of these. So when we get to the book of Acts, you'll remember that Jesus' disciples are still looking for something, right? They're looking for an established messianic kingdom. And so in Acts 1, flip with me back to Acts 1, Acts 1, they come to Jesus and say, um, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's a very important verse to set the tone for the book of Acts. They come to him and say, okay, we know that the Old Testament is full of messianic promises and that the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem, Isaiah 2. Um, He will reign from Jerusalem, Uh, Zion will be exalted, and all the nations will flock to him and learn from him. Um, They will all know his ways and live according to his ways. And so the disciples at this point are saying, is this now, and where's our seat, right? Uh, That's the the ongoing issue throughout the Gospels, is we want to be on that messianic, um, in that messianic rule. We want to sit beside you, and we want to rule of the earth. And we want to see those Romans subjugated, right? We want to see the Greeks subjugated. We want to see this happen. Well, Jesus says to them in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, this is not the time for that. And the word epic there is an important word because it references what we've been talking about in God's unfolding plan, right? God's plan is unfolding, and along the way, there are certain epics, like Pharaoh, let my people go. 
like, let's march around Jericho and blow some trumpets and this thing will fall down. Right? Those are certain times and seasons, epics of God's unfolding plan. And one of those key epics is the Messianic kingdom. The Messiah will sit on the Davidic throne, Isaiah 2, um, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 66. All these things are going to come about. And the disciples know this. They know their Old Testaments better than we know our Old Testaments. Um, And they're looking for it. And Jesus says, okay, now is not the time for that to happen. And then verse 8, but you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So it's not the time for a messianic kingdom, but it is time for you to be my witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, if you're looking for a kingdom, right, if you're looking for an established kingdom, you're probably looking for some sort of comfort, stability, peace. Um, you're probably not looking to go travel to the remotest parts of the world. Um, that's not usually on your agenda. Um, but Jesus says to them, this epic of history that you're about to enter into is not going to be about sitting on a throne. It's going to be about you being my witness to key people, all nations, throughout the globe. All right? You tracking with me here? You making sense? Okay. So, they still don't understand what is about to happen. Right? They don't get it. They are thinking a kingdom reign is coming, and Jesus is about to fill them with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be his witnesses, and they're going to be martyred, and they're going to have difficult lives, and it will be hard for them, and they don't even realize it yet. So then when we come to Acts 2, right, Jesus tells them, wait, you'll receive power, and then in Acts 2, the Spirit comes just as promised. And Peter and the apostles stand up and they begin to preach. And there are possibly millions gathered uh, to worship on the day of Pentecost from all over uh, the Roman Empire, speaking multiple languages. They receive the Holy Spirit. The, the apostles, the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and the apostles stand up to preach. And what happens? 3,000 people believe. And what kind of people are these? Well, let me show you. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2. Peter is speaking specifically, men of Israel. Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There's our unfolding plan of God. You, people of Israel, nailed to a cross by the hands of a godless, godless men and put him to death. So who, who are the 3,000 people saved? They're mainly Jewish people. Right? They receive the Holy Spirit. This is, in promise, this is uh, consistent with the, the prophecy of Joel 2. You see him reference that in uh, his sermon. But what we see is that God's plan is unfolding. And as soon as the Spirit comes, Peter and the apostles realize that there is a change that's happened. 
Um, not a change in something different, but a development has happened. And so they, they receive an affirmation uh, that this is a divine work, and they're able to speak in tongues. Right? Incidentally here, it is very clear, very clear, that these tongues are known languages. Right? Read verses 5 to 11. Right? The wonder and the power here is that these Galileans who, who don't know multiple languages are all of a sudden able to speak in a way that the people from the nations can hear it, right? Or Jews from the nations can hear it. They hear it in their mother tongue. And that is what is miraculous and wonderful. And it confirms that God is, un, God is working. His plan's unfolding, right? All right, so we move on. Um, Acts 8. So we know God is going to save the Jews. That's, that's clear. But what about the Samaritans? Right? We know, we don't need to rehearse the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. Right? We know that that was not a good relationship. Um, but is God even going to save them? Are, are, are the Samaritans in God's redemptive plan? Answer, yes. See Acts 8. Right? Um, in Acts 8, Philip, if you look at verses 4 to 8, Philip uh, does all sorts of signs and wonders. It's important. And then he preaches to the Samaritans, and miraculously the Samaritans believe. Well then, Peter and John have to come along later, and what they do is they pray, and the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is because the, the, the apostles were, were the ones who were going to be affirming and, and sort of um, guarding this plan. Right? They were the ones who were going to take what God, Jesus had taught them and implement it and teach it and proclaim it and be his witnesses. And the apostles were slow to believe all that God had written. Right? So they needed some affirmation. And so, the Samaritans believe and they receive the Holy Spirit too. They're just like us. Now we come to Acts 10. What about the Gentiles though? Samaritans, they're part Jewish, part Gentile. So they have a little bit of, they have a foot in the door. But what about the Gentiles? Well, this I think is the most powerful section when we're thinking about the unfolding of God's plan. Um, Will the Gentiles be included in this plan? Well, you'll remember in Acts 10, Cornelius has a dream or a vision. um, And then Peter also has a vision. Um, His vision was of what? Yeah, sheet coming down with all sorts of bacon in it, right? It's only bacon. And Peter has an opportunity to have bacon for the first time, right? He was a faithful Jew, and he wasn't going to do that. And he says to God, I will not defile myself. And remember what God says to him. Don't you call unclean what I'm calling clean, right? So Peter learns that there is no partiality with God. Peter had thought there was partiality, right? That, that certainly the Gentiles aren't going to be enveloped into this plan. You know, maybe they're enveloped, but they're like, you know, third-class citizens maybe. Uh, maybe they can like come and, you know, wash our floors in, you know, you know, in the new kingdom. Uh, but that'll be it. Well, no, what we see is in, in Acts 10 that God confirms that the Gentiles are miraculously saved as well. 
And they're, they're included in God's unfolding plan of redemption. So Peter uh, receives this vision. He's called by Cornelius to come and share something, to, to preach to him. Um, in Acts 10, um, verse 29, Peter comes and uh, he comes to them and he says, So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Speaking to Cornelius. Cornelius, why have you sent me uh, to come to you? And Cornelius says, well, four days ago I was praying and uh, I had a vision. And so I sent for you immediately. And in verse 33, now then we're all here present before God to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord to say. So essentially Peter receives a vision. Cornelius receives a vision. Cornelius says, come talk to us. We know you have something to say to us. And Peter says, why are you calling me? I don't know what to say to you. And everyone's just sort of up in the air. And then Peter comes and he starts preaching in Acts 10 in verse 34. And what does he say? The first thing out of his mouth is, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. And then down in verse 40, so he preaches and then in verse 43, of him, speaking of Jesus, the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile, who believes, receives forgiveness of sins. And notice verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Because why? Why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And for they, for they were hearing, verse 46, they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Miraculous signs and wonders affirming that God is saving these people. And then verse 47, notice Peter's conclusion. Surely no one can refuse water from the, for these to be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And Peter ordered them to be baptized. And then Peter goes back to the apostles. Verse, chapter 11. Um, they hear that Peter is now preaching the, the, the promise of redemption to Gentiles. It was bad enough that Samaritans got in. Now Gentiles. And so, verse 2, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, chapter 11, verse 2, to those who were circumcised, and they took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence what had happened. Right? So he just rehearses, essentially rehearses chapter 10. And you jump down to 15. And as I began to speak, he's talking about when he was preaching to the Gentiles. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Do you see the sort of awe there? Just like it happened with us, it happened to the Gentiles. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this is key, therefore, if God gave to them 
the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down, rightly so, and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the gift of repentance that leads to life. It's like everyone is confused as to what's happening. God knows what he's doing. The apostles don't understand what's happening. Peter preaches. The Gentiles believe. And the Holy Spirit falls on them just like he did at Pentecost. And they're like, "Uh, this is not what I anticipated. Um, And then Peter's thinking, okay, maybe this dream, maybe this vision all lines up. Um, I don't know, but this is what happened to us as an affirmation of God's work. I'm not getting in God's way here. And and he says to the other Jewish Christians, if you want to get in the way of God's work, you go ahead, but I'm not. And then they quiet and say, okay, well then, here we are. At this epic in history, I guess Gentiles are a part of it too. Right? Do you see that? It's all being affirmed and um, confirmed by miracle signs and wonders. You flip over to Acts 19, and we're out of time. You flip over to Acts 19. Or do we stop at 10? Okay, so we've got a little time. You flip over to Acts 19, and you see the same thing happen with Old Covenant believers. So the question is, well, what about John the Baptist's disciples? You know, surely they get to sort of like, you know, maybe they'll get to hold on to the Old Covenant some. No, no, they don't. They receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, and it's confirmed just like with the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles, there will be no old covenant believers left behind. Everyone is enveloped in this unfolding plan of redemption. And God's way, right, point two, God's way is to affirm that His plan is unfolding by punctuating these epics of history, transition periods, with marks of signs and wonders and miracles. All right? Now, the next question that is vital for us is where are we in God's redemptive plan? If it was unfolding in Genesis and the Old Testament, and it's unfolding in the New Testament, and in the book of Acts, we see it was unfolding to the degree that uh, God was confirming his salvific plan to the nations, where are we right now? What ought we to be expecting? Should, should we expect that when we go to our Gentile friend's house, which probably most of our friends are Gentiles because, you know, um, should we expect to have a vision or a dream to sort of tug us along to get there? Should we expect when we share the gospel with them at the dinner table that the Spirit will descend on them just like it did with Cornelius and his Gentile family? Where are we in God's redemptive plan. I would submit to you that much of the chaos that we see in charismatic churches and in the lives of our precious, beloved friends who have have bought into this misunderstanding of God's work, much of the chaos that comes is the result of failing to properly situate yourself in God's redemptive plan. If like the disciples, you want to live and reign in the the messianic kingdom right now, 
you're going to be in a world of hurt, right? There's a lot different, there's a big difference between sitting on a throne and being crucified upside down. Peter knows that. If you think that at this point in redemptive history, God looks to you to raise your uh, raise the dead, which is not an uncommon thing. Right? You're familiar with that sort of thing. Um, if you think that that's the case, if you think that if you're in a, in a difficult spot in your marriage and, and God might just speak to you and tell you to leave, leave your husband or leave your wife, if you think that, um, it's because you fail to see where we are at in God's redemptive plan. It's very practical. Well, here's the question. How do we know where we're at? We read the book of Acts, and it looks like we're right in the middle of an unfolding plan of God's confirmation of of Samaritans and Gentiles. Well, we know where we're at from God's Word. And when we look at the big picture of God's unfolding plan of redemption, uh, we see that the Messiah has come, just as promised, that He died in the place of sinners, just as predicted, Isaiah 53, and that He died in the place of sinners in order that he might reconcile the world to God. He affirmed this desire to save the nations in the book of Acts, as we've just seen. He did so with revelatory gifts and signs and wonders. And it is now absolutely clear that this season, or this epic of redemptive history, is about the salvation of the nations. That is what this epic of history is about. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Right? Romans 11, Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon the nation of Israel. It's partial. There are still Gentiles who are being sa- or Jews who are being saved. But this is a season called the ingathering of the Gentiles. This is a season in God's redemptive history where Gentiles like you and me come into God's covenant of redemption. Right? This is a season where we are brought near to God through Christ, where Gentiles at large are being saved. All right, That's, this is the ingathering of the Gentiles. Now, what is our responsibility in this epic of redemptive history? Well, to answer this question, uh, we need to look at an important hermeneutical issue, and then I'll give you the, the answer. The hermeneutical issue is this. We need, we need to know how to rightly interpret God's Word. But if we're going to know what our responsibility is, we have to know how to interpret God's Word. There are two words, descriptive and prescriptive. De- descriptive um, and prescriptive. When we read the Bible, we read the description of God's unfolding plan. Right? We, we read it described all throughout the Old Testament. We read it in the New Testament, uh, mainly in narrative portions of Scripture. We see descriptions of what God is doing in His plan. And then there's prescription. These are prescriptions, instructions, injunctions, directives for what we need to be doing in the world. And let me give you the hermeneutical principle. The hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. You do not derive, let me say it this way, you, we do not derive prescriptive 
responsibilities from narrative texts of Scripture. Let me say it again. We do not derive prescriptive or instructions or commands from narrative portions of Scripture. You know that intuitively. You don't go to a narrative portion of Scripture normally to figure out what God wants you to do with your life. What God is saying to you. And let me, let me tell you how you know that intuitively. None of you, don't raise your hands if you are. Maybe do raise your hand, your hand if you are. <laughs> None of you are in favor of polygamy. Why? Why, 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 not, why aren't you in favor of polygamy? Well, maybe first off because it's a terrible idea. Right? Just ask all the patriarchs. Ask their wives and ask their children, right? It's, it's not a good idea. Um, it's not of the Lord. But all the patriarchs had multiple wives, right? So why, why don't we advocate polygamy? Someone tell me why. Right? Those are narrative portions of Scripture that describe what was happening as God was unfolding His plan of redemption. Right, we have, we have a prescriptive text for us. And you know where it is? It's in a didactic or teaching portion of Scripture. Right? We derive prescription commands from teaching sections of Scripture. The didactic section of Scripture where we find out about marriage, Genesis 2.24. Right? A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And the... Two shall become one flesh, right? So we just intuitively understand we would never look at Abraham's life and say, well, maybe I need to have another wife, right? No, because we intuit that hermeneutical principle. But for some reason, when we come to the book of Acts, we throw it out, right? And we start getting confused by signs, wonders, miracles. Uh, We're confused by it because we forget that principle. We don't go to descriptive uh, texts to derive prescriptive responsibilities. So, what we see in the book of Acts, does that principle make sense? What we see in the book of Acts is the description of God's unfolding plan of redemption. It's described for us. It is not prescribed for us to go around putting our hands on Samaritans and praying that they receive the Holy Spirit. It is not prescribed for us to go around speaking in tongues. The book of Acts describes these signs and wonders and other phenomena that accompanied God's developing plan of redemption. And if you go to Acts to figure out what your responsibilities is as a Christian, without that hermeneutical principle, you will get yourself in trouble. Right. Another thing we could say is we don't meet. Why, why don't we meet in churches? I mean, why don't we meet in houses? Why don't we meet in churches? Right. I mean, the, the early church were meeting in houses. Right? There are whole movements saying it is almost sinful for you to meet in a church building. Well, they're going to a descriptive text to get prescriptive responsibilities. Right. We meet in a church building because we understand that Acts is a description of God's plan. Right. It's not a 
not a prescription. Now, don't get me wrong. There are prescriptive things that you, there are things you can learn from narrative text. The Bible is full of narrative texts. But the things that are clearest and, and um, the, the, the things that God wants us to know specifically are affirmed in narrative texts and given explicitly in didactic teaching texts. Does that make sense? Okay, we are out of time. So I will have to conclude my lesson. Um, let me say this. So what is our responsibility? Go read Matthew 28, 19 and 20.